Morning everyone, good to be with you again. Today we're going to continue our uh, sermon series uh, called uh, Being Human, where we've been looking in 1 Thessalonians uh, together. And this really is about what does it mean to be really and fully human? And we, what we're seeing as we go through this passage is to be fully human is to be in connection with God. That God puts back what was lost, he mends what was broken. And in that replacing and in that mending, he elevates us to a, a place where we can really relate to one another uh, on, a, on an even keel, where we love one another with a love that we've received first from God. These are the things that make us truly and fully human. And so we've reached today uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 17 to 20. I'm going to go ahead and read that for us now. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short while, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I pulled it again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we all glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. These are passionate words from the Apostle. I wonder if you've ever heard uh, half of a phone call you know when someone's on the phone maybe someone in your family maybe a husband or wife and you hear them talking and you're just thinking what's the other person saying what's, what's going on on the other end of the phone and you can imagine on the phone and you're saying you're trying not to interrupt but you're saying who's on the phone who's calling and you're just really intrigued by the half of the conversation that you can hear sometimes with these letters of the new testament it can be a little bit like that we're getting half the conversation what we, what we don't see is, uh, is the letter that came to Paul or the communication that Paul had that prompted the letter. And so what we have to do is do a bit of detective work and piece together the reason for the letter, the other half of the conversation, if you like. But there certainly has been a conversation with the Thessalonians. There's been some problems, actually, uh, with Paul. And so what happened was, as we said, I think a few weeks ago, what happened here was that Paul had to, and his companions, had to leave Thessalonica very quickly because the rabble had gathered together, didn't like his preaching Jesus, and were causing trouble for those early believers. And so they had to rush out of the city, it says, in the dead of night. And because of that quick exit, after just a few weeks, there was easy criticism of Paul and his companions. It was easy for others to say, those who were in that rabble and crowd and wanted to discredit him, to say, look, he didn't really care about you. He, he talked a good, you know, he talked a good game, but he didn't really care for you. And so Paul is writing this letter, at least in part, to address the, the fact that actually his heart is longing for them, that their connection in Christ is a deep and passionate family connection, and that he loves them very dearly. So that's what's happening in this. Sense. That's the other half of the conversation, as it were. This passion is full of love and longing. It's full of the joys of, of a deep, lasting friendship and the anguish of separation. And of course, those things, we, we recognize those things, particularly right now, that, that, love, that love and longing, that sense of separation, that longing to be together, these are extremely familiar emotions to us right now. And these are the things that Paul is expressing, and they are profoundly human, profoundly human. And as we see here, very, very godly indeed. So, the first thing I think we need to note is this is a very stark contrast 
for Paul himself. Paul wasn't always called Paul. And the first time we meet him is in the early chapters of Acts. And Paul was called back then Saul. And he was a very, very different character. And, and what we know from these early chapters of Acts, it's kind of Acts 6 uh, or 7, 8 and 9, is that he hated Christians with a passion. The first time we meet this young man, as I said before, called Saul, is in Acts chapter 7. And he, it says, is guarding a pile of coats. And why is there a pile of coats? Well, what's happening is the tragedy of the stoning, the killing of a young man called Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Jesus, a lover of God. And as he explained to a crowd what it meant to follow Jesus, they, their anger rose to the point where they called him a blasphemer and they picked up rocks and they literally stoned him to death uh, in Jerusalem. And it says that Saul uh, was watching and giving approval to what was happening. Now, Saul, very sadly, kind of graduated even from that position. So by the time we reach Acts chapter 8, what do we find? We find Saul is passionately seeking out and destroying churches wherever he can find them and having Christians arrested and having them dragged from their homes. He's even by the time we get to Acts chapter 9, building alliances against the Christians. Such is his passionate distaste for Jesus. And that's, that's the man that we see uh, transformed as he writes this letter to the Thessalonians. So how is this man? Oh, admittedly, by the time we meet him in, in 1 Thessalonians, he's now called Paul. But how is he so changed? How is he so transformed? How, how has he gone from deep despising to loving and to longing? He now calls them brothers and sisters. He's now deeply saddened, even orphaned, by their enforced separation. And he's counting their partnership in Jesus as his glory and crown. What has happened to this guy? What's changed? Well, the answer, of course, is that Jesus has happened to him. And we read all about that in Acts chapter 9. So now Saul, this young man Saul, who's, who's gathering hatred against the church and trying to uh, have it destroyed and disbanded, he's on the way to Damascus to do the same thing. He's going to find the Christians of the city and he's going to try and have them arrested and disrupted. And we pick up the story here. Meanwhile, Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul replied. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. This is the original Damascus Road experience. You might have heard that phrase. This is it. This is where it actually happened. This bright light flashed. He fell to the ground. He heard a loud voice, and it was God speaking to him. What happens next is he's taken into the, into the city, 
he goes and he, he, he is obviously he can't see he's blinded by this light and actually he's taken to a Christian presumably one of the Christians that he would have been seeking to have arrested and in the days that he spends with this guy and in, in the moments he spends with him he is transformed and changed and God has done a work in his heart and what you find is that after he'd met Jesus in that dramatic way on the road to Damascus his loathing for those early believers is turned into longing to be with them this brothers and sisters is why we make such a fuss of the gospel this good news of Jesus is fizzing with transformational power just as much today as it was then to see people change, to see our own hearts transformed is of such worth and joy. It really is everything. And Paul is describing exactly that in this letter to the Thessalonians. Quite literally in that moment, you know, Jesus says to Saul, Saul, stop going that way, turn around and go my way instead. And, and Paul does it and nothing is ever the same. His name is changed from Saul to Paul and he is transformed. This is called repentance and faith. That's what that's, that's the bit of the gospel that this that's, this moment demonstrates. You see, repentance is turning around. Paul's going one way. Saul is going one way to Damascus. He's going to persecute the Christians. He meets Jesus, and Jesus says, "Don't do that anymore. Turn around. Change what you're going to do." And, he, and that's repentance. He does it. He changes. And then he visits the Christians as brothers and sisters, not as enemies. It's a real turning. It's repentance. And then faith is following. Faith is, faith is like that active, active following of Jesus. And the result of, as we've seen, is a deep love for these people, for all people, actually, and a new family. And that's important, too, as we look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians. And it's the language of family the reality of family that Paul really pushes into in this passage. We mentioned this earlier, but let's look at the aspects of family that Paul is dealing with. He says, he calls them, and I've used it in addressing you, but Paul uses it in this letter. He says, brothers and sisters. It's the language of family. That's the first thing. Secondly, it says how deeply saddened he was at having to be whisked away in the dead of night, as we've said before it says it was like being orphaned it was like tearing parents away from their children or children away from their parents very emotive language he said that's what it was like to be separated from you and thirdly he counts their partnership their friendship their relationship their family connection in Jesus as what as his glory and his crown so the first thing we see is that Paul calls the Thessalonians brothers and sisters and we talked a little bit about that already, but let's look at that in some detail. This actually, if you think about it, is a strange way to talk about people who aren't your brothers and sisters. Referring to people as brothers and sisters who aren't is a bit strange. It's not entirely without precedent. And sometimes people will call, uh, sometimes people of the same nation or tribe uh, might call uh, someone a brother and a sister. Uh, it denotes a close link, a shared history and experience. Um, but actually, in our, in our culture, mostly, it's a, it sounds a bit, a bit odd. But Paul has come to understand something. He's come to experience something, and that is that God is his father. 
And that's not just, you know, in name. It's not just, well, it was written in the Old Testament somewhere, so I have to believe it. He's experienced God as a loving father. And for Paul and for believers everywhere to have God as our father, to have Jesus as our brother and friend, to have to be part of the life of God is our deepest identity. That's the most real thing about who we are as Christians, is that God is our father, that Jesus is our brother, and that we share in the life of God. And having that as our deepest identity means that we're part of his family. It actually means that we're adopted into God's family, and that's the gospel. And therefore, being adopted in means that we have brothers and sisters. And we have fathers and mothers. We have a whole family around us, and that is the church of God. And that's one of the greatest joys of being part of uh, of Christianity, part of a family, part of a church, is that we are close, we're friends, we are more than that, we are family. Usually, of course, to be part of a family, you um, you have to be naturally born, that's, that's how it works, it's by virtue of natural birth that you become part of a family, but that's not how it is with God's family. And listen, the truth is this too, that parents love the children that are born to us, we don't choose them, They are literally delivered to us. That's how it happens. A child is delivered. You don't choose them. And that's how it usually works. But that's not how it is with God's family. Every single one of us is chosen and adopted into being part of his family. We read about that in Ephesians chapter one, another letter that Paul wrote. Let me read a few verses to you. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You and I, because we've become believers, because we've repented and followed Jesus, are in his family, adopted in. So what does it mean to be adopted? Well, let's just look at that very briefly. Firstly, it means you belong. You belong somewhere. Before you didn't, and now you do. You belong. You have a home. You have people who love you and care about you. They care about when you're happy. They care about when you weep. They care when you're hurting. No matter what kind of trouble you're in, They're there for you. Why? Because you've been adopted in to that family. You're part of it. You are linked in, woven in, adopted into this family. The other thing that happens is your children carry your name. The adopted children carry the name. Now, our children carry our name, and it happens to be Cottingham. And and we know that that we're the Cottinghams. And that's our, that's our little unit, as it were. And we gather ourselves together and we long to be together. Um, but actually to be a Christian is to be like that, is to be in, to be part of the family, to own the name of Jesus, to be a brother and a sister together. Now, historically, along with a name would come something of the authority that went with that name. Now, we get a bit suspicious of that sometimes because of its many misuses. But actually, it can be a very positive thing. So to be a Cottingham, for instance, might carry a little bit of authority. If I, if now let's just say I owned uh, lots of businesses and land and stuff, to be a Cottingham would carry a bit of authority in that sphere of influence. 
And to own the name of Jesus carries something of the authority of the name of Jesus and the name of God himself can be a real force for good. And then also with the family name comes an inheritance. Children benefit from the diligence and hard work of their parents. And that's also true of being adopted in. So when we're adopted in to God's family, all of those things become true for all of us. We carry the name. We are loved. We belong. We're part of something. We have brothers and sisters who deeply care passionately for us. Um, and of course, we have the authority and, and the inheritance of the father. And we care because of his name. Now, this is Paul's lived experience. He's come to understand this. And it's, it, as we've seen, it's, it's a transformational experience for him. It's a total change from what he was like before. Now, these believers, new as they are in their faith, are in his family. They're part of the same family, part of the same name, owning the name of God together. He's adopted. They were adopted it's a level playing field. There's no, no one gets in on their own merits. No one was just born in, it just happened. No, they were all chosen by God, came through the gospel of Jesus and have been transformed by his love and power. And so to be in this family is to be loved by God, to be welcomed by God and to welcome one another as well. And it's with all this in mind that Paul calls the Thessalonians brothers and sisters. The second thing we notice from this passage that Paul uh, talks about is he says, I was orphaned or we were orphaned by our separation from you. So if calling the Thessalonians brothers and sisters uh, was, was kind of powerful stuff, this kind of ramps it up incredibly. He now says it was like we were orphaned. In fact, he says we were orphaned by our separation, putting more emphasis on the, the depth of their love and relationship let's read what he actually says in 1 Thessalonians 2 17 but brothers and sisters when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person not in thought at our intense longing we made every effort to see you this longing to be with the Thessalonians draws this these statements out of Paul it's, it's what he feels for them it's this passion to be with them. He says it's like losing your children. It's like children losing their parents, forcibly separated. Very emotive language Paul is using. He's, he's telling them, he's telling us, I, I, there's a very deep love that I have for you and that I know that you have for me. What do we learn from this? What can we, what can we, what can we do in, in response, as it were, to this deep longing that Paul is showing? Well, we learn a few things. Paul is not afraid to show his emotions. He's, he's not afraid to display what's within. And sometimes as British people, you know, the stiff upper lip and everything, we, we hold back a bit. No, Paul is, is he's kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve. Maybe that's the phrase to use. He's, he's saying, this is how I feel. I feel this for you. Even though I can't be with you, I'm feeling things for you. And then, of course, in the same, in the same verses, we see he values their physical presence. I long to be with you. I want to be in the room with you. Again, we feel that intensely, don't we? I wonder if actually coming out of this time of forced separation, as we, as we slowly untangle ourselves, God willing, from this 
virus. We will, with greater passion, want to be again in the room together. I know some of you feel that very intensely. Some are a bit nervous, but here we see Paul saying, I long to be with you. I long to be in the room again with you. And he says, the third thing he says really is, look, even, even when his plans are thwarted, I just kept trying. I mean, Paul says, Satan stopped me coming. That's how, that's how passionate he is. That's how strongly he feels about it all. It's like not being with you, it's like Satan stopping me do it. And even when those plans are thwarted, he keeps on trying again and again. He says, I tried to be with you. So what do we learn? How do we respond to those things? Well, can I just say this? Be honest with each other. Be open as friends together, as brothers and sisters adopted to his family. Be prepared to be a bit vulnerable with one another. We need to be close together. I know that we've been separated, but as we do find our way back towards each other, let's tell each other what it's been like. Let's be honest. Let's not hide away behind a facade. And that's what family is like, isn't it? Family ultimately tells the truth to each other. Let's be that way. Let's be vulnerable with one another. Secondly, let's not just relate via tweets and likes. <laughs> it's really easy to live so much of our lives online in social media and more than ever before, maybe now, that the reality, the kind of messy reality of life is sort of separated. And you know what? It also separates us as well from one another. Let's not just give in to that kind of cultural wave. Let's, like Paul, make every effort, and it's gonna take some creative effort for a while yet, isn't it, to be together. But let's use, let's, let's use this time to be creative. How can we, how can we connect as brothers and sisters? How can we respond and, and how can we emulate something of Paul's longing in our own situation. How could you do that this week? Now, it may well be that we need to use social media a lot more, but there are moments to connect, even socially distanced connect. But let's use every opportunity we can to get and to be with each other. There's such value in it. There's such strength that comes in that sharing face-to-face -face of our lives together. People are really, really important. I know that's a th it's like, why is he telling us that? It's obvious. Well, I think that the gospel tells us that. It tells us that we're made in God's image. It tells us that we are family. It tells us that we are linked together by Jesus, the most powerful connecting force in all universe. We're going to take communion in a minute and celebrate something of that oneness and connection. And the importance of each of us needs to be played out in our lives. That means making every effort to find each other and to find each other even in the moment, to look through those facades sometimes that we put up and reach in and risk the vulnerability of deep relationship. That's what Paul is longing for with the Thessalonians. And then thirdly, just like Paul, don't give up on each other. Now, as we emerge from this virus, we're going to find some who, who, who very quickly, we are just going to be in the room again, and others who feel like they just can't do that. Let's not give up on each other. We are family. There's going to be a range of responses to this. It's going to take time. It's going to take creativity and effort. It's going to take loving, uh, bearing with one another as we find our way back to each other, each other. But don't give up. Paul said, I made every effort 
let's be those people who make every effort to love each other dearly. And actually that spills out into the city. You know, we're part of a family of the church, part of a family together in City Church, but we're also part of a family in the city. There are people who need to see this kind of love, people who don't know how valuable they are. They just don't understand. No one's ever explained it to them. It's never been demonstrated to them. The church of God is an institution, a body which does that so well. It's, its ability to draw people in, to be part of that family is unsurpassed by anything else in all of the world. And we get to do that, to show people how valuable they are, to welcome them to be adopted in as well. There's, there's, there's inheritance to spare. There's so much of, that God wants us to give and to share. I just want to just make that clear. We are a church with open doors, open wide. Everyone is welcome. Now, God changes us on the journey, but everyone is welcome. So let's not give up on each other. Let's not give up on this city that so needs to see something of Jesus. The final thing that Paul says in this short passage here in this letter is he says this. He says that the Thessalonian believers, these dear brothers and sisters, this family of believers is what? Is his joy and his crown. Again, passionate language, full of meaning and full of emotion. I, when I read this, I thought, mm, what's my joy? What's my crown? What do I most enjoy? What am I aiming for? How will I define the success of my life's efforts? Paul is saying, it's you. It's people like you. It's believers. It's Christians. It's you, Thessalonians. You are my joy. You are my crown. It's about you. It's for you. I'm thinking, what's mine? Maybe you want to reflect on that a little bit as I have done. <clears throat> But what we see in Paul's life is that that, that that emotional response, that passion for people, that passion for the Thessalonians is born out of a life deeply rooted in God. That's where it comes from. That's surprisingly for some maybe where that humanity comes from. To say that those people, that you believers, that this family are so important comes from what? A life rooted deeply in the gospel and in God. That's, that's Paul. Paul, who was transformed from this Christian-hating activist into a passionate preacher of Jesus. Now he's saying, oh, you are my joy. And it's out of the life in God that comes the passion for God's people. So to be fully human is to be devoted to one another. And where does the power come to be devoted in that way. It comes from that life deeply rooted in God. For you to be my joy, for you to be my glory, for you to be my crown is to understand how the gospel first has worked in my own wretched heart and also how it's worked in yours. To understand the wonder of being chosen by God myself. I, with, with no credit to me at all, God just chose me as he chooses you. He loved me, not because I was lovely, but because I was wretched. And he drew me into his family. He says, you, you get to be loved. You get to be in. You get to be called a brother, a father. You get to be part of this thing. 
Why? Because of his great love. To understand that is to understand the depth of the glory, the wonder, the love of God, and to begin to see that in others too. Wow, you're precious. Why? Because God says you're precious. Wow, I, I love you, but why? Because God says how wonderful you are. And I'm beginning to see with his eyes, beginning to understand this wonder. Then it's to recognize, and as I understand that, is to recognize, wow, I so needed and need that divine intervention. What, what was broken in me, what was lost in me, was so broken and so lost, the only solution, the only solution was that God would come and do it. No one else could. There's no, no, no other force in the universe powerful enough to fix what was broken, to replace what was lost, except God himself. And he comes and does it in Jesus. And then that life devoted to God starts to spill out into a passion for others, into a life that prays that others would know the glory of this family relationship, this love, this embrace. I want that for our city. I'm sure you do too. And we see that pouring out of Paul in this letter. Wouldn't it be great if that was pouring out of all of us in the days and weeks to come? The city's going to need to be healed in ways that we can't quite imagine yet. It's going to need passionate people willing to open our family to many, many more sons and daughters to be the fathers and the mothers that the city needs. And that's my appeal. And I think that's Paul's appeal is to love with that love and longing, to see the goal of his life is your success. And of course, to be really family, it's the goal of our lives is the success of others. I know as a church, as a eldership team, we are passionate for your thriving and that we would be as a church passionate for the thriving of a city. And the thriving of a city means just what it meant for Saul who became poor, what it meant for the Thessalonians, the thriving a city is a city connected to Jesus. That's how we become truly and fully human. We're going to share communion together now to celebrate this oneness. And that's one of the strange things about doing communion like this, is that communion is about being one. What we do in communion is we, we break one loaf and then we share it together, saying we are one, we're together, we're part of the same family, we share Christ of course, we can't do that in the same room. And maybe the fact that we've continued to do it, even though we're separated, is going to make it all the sweeter when we can come back together. It reminds us of the importance of our unity, of our oneness, of our family life together. But this is a reminder of Jesus' body. It's a reminder that we all need access. We all have access to the Father through Jesus in exactly the same way, rich, poor, smart, not so smart, all of us have access through Jesus. It's the same. And we all need him if we're going to become all that God has for us. So let's share this bread together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life poured out for us. We thank you for his body given for us and we thank you that we share this together because we are one family together and lord jesus even as we take this bread together we remember our oneness we long to be back together again and father we pray together across the city lord jesus for a swift end to this 
crisis. Father, we pray for the scientists. We pray for the doctors and for the nurses who are working so hard to bring about solutions and treatments and vaccines. Lord God, would you please strengthen their efforts? Would you please, Spirit of God, speed the day when we can be back together as family in the room? In Jesus' name, amen. And then, of course, we also take wine together. We remember that along with Jesus' broken body, there was shed blood. And this shed blood represents the cleansing of sin. It's what Saul needed as he became Paul. It was profound that his name was changed. And as we drink wine, we remember this cleanses me. This changes the very fundamentals of who I am and who you are. It's a reminder of all that Jesus has done. The Bible says this, though your, skin, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And Lord Jesus, as we drink this, we remember just that you've done exactly that. You have removed our sins from us. You've cleansed us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are with us, our brother, our friend. We thank you that because of you, we have a father in heaven, a family around us. And Lord Jesus, we ask for your strength as we go through this week together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.